Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. And the Bible provided for you, that would be page 1004. You're welcome to borrow that. You're welcome to keep that. Well, there's no place that I'd rather be this morning than here with my church family, with you. It's great to see you. If it's the case that on Christmas you may have otherwise been alone, if Christmases are lonely for you, if you're just actually alone because you don't have family in town, well, I'm especially glad to welcome you to church this morning. I'm much gladder to be here than on Woodruff Road. Every town has its Woodruff Road. I end up over there on a little errand on Saturday afternoon sometimes, and I don't know what you all complain about, and then I hit traffic, and then it's, it's Christmas season. Woodruff Road is a bad part of town. For the traffic also, this holiday season, for the expenses that you might incur, it seems that Christmas gets a little more expensive every year, and no doubt inflation has affected the cost of Christmas this year. I don't know if you've ever gotten a gift and thought, this is a huge mistake. Um, they might not want it, and it costs this much. Or maybe you're buying it for yourself, for someone else to give you. That happens sometimes. You think, I have made a huge mistake for myself. Maybe I need to return this. Well, it may have been that what we tend to do with Christmas Some of us are tempted to do, in fact, we are all at times tempted to do with Christ, to wonder what we have gotten ourselves into, if this was a good decision after all, if our trust is properly placed, and if we haven't made a giant mistake. The original readers of the book of Hebrews would be able to relate with that. If you're here this morning wondering if you've made a giant mistake, not just coming to church, but identifying with Jesus... Maybe there are new costs in your life for doing so. Uh, This text is here to help you, as it's here to help us all. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have this, his descendants from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him.
Well, we work through books of the Bible at Heritage, and um, it's kind of nice to know what I'm supposed to preach next week. Around Christmas time, I'm willing to take an exception to that. Uh, and around Easter, I'll look at where we're headed and consider, is there an obvious connection to the, to the context, to the, the, the holiday of Christmas or, or Easter? And is there a natural way to make that connection uh, for most of my hearers? Uh, and if yes, then great. If there's a less obvious connection and a less natural way to get there for my hearers, uh, I might still stay there, but I'll keep that in mind. Now, if it's a very difficult connection to make, not apparent to any of us on first hearing, and a terribly, seemingly unnatural uh, uh, thing to make that connection in the context of a sermon that will be shorter, as this one will be, well, then I guess like this Sunday, we'll just do it anyways. Uh, and for two reasons. Um, first, there is something to say for seeing together how Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament scriptures. Not just, he's not just the fulfillment of Bible verses in the Old Testament that we're all familiar with, whether you go to church or not. He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And when we happen to be dialed in in particular on his work and his coming and his incarnation, it can be helpful to look at almost any text and say, well, what does this have to do with that? Because the Bible isn't uh, a bunch of separate stories ultimately, but one unified story. So it's worth the work. And putting in the work means that we will benefit from that work. There is a reward for the work of studying the Bible together every Sunday and even on a Sunday like this where we're talking about Melchizedek and what he has to do with our, our Messiah. Uh, this sermon will be its own sermon and next week its own sermon, but really every text needs the next text this one really needs the next text. So I'll show you a little bit of where this chapter 7 is going, although we'll stop it uh, at verse 10. You'll have to come back next week or tune in if you're just traveling through town for the full, full story. So we've begun by reading this passage about a meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham, perhaps that greatest of Old Testament characters, Greatest, at least, in that he comes before Moses and David. That Abraham is a great Old Testament character. Uh, and a meeting between him and this man, Melchizedek. Uh, and this matter of a meeting frames the passage. So verse 1 here, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham. And verse 10, he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's just the author's way of providing a little intro and outro to a unit of thought. So that's why we're doing all 10 verses this morning. I really wanted to stop at verse 3. We're going to do all 10. But you'll see how verses 4 through 10 work. To get there, three questions this morning. Who are these men? Why are they meeting? And what significance does this meeting have for our meeting this morning? Who are these men? Well, Abraham is good and familiar. This is the one to whom God came, the one whom God called. Uh, God created Adam and the human race, Eve, and set them in the garden. 
And Adam was the representative of the human race, and he fell into sin, banished from God's presence, sent out of the garden. Our God of grace didn't abandon the human project. He came, and he came, and he came. And a big coming of our God in grace was his coming to Abraham with a call. And he gave to Abraham a promise that he will have a great name, and we're talking about him today, that he'll have many descendants, and here we are, his descendants by faith, Uh, that he'll have a land, a place, the Lord will lead him to a place, that the Lord will bless him and bless all the families of the earth through him. Oh, that's good news for those who are born under the curse of sin and death in this world. Our God is a God who comes in grace to bless. And Abraham is the one through whom God will do that. Whom he will return, reverse the curse. We've spoken this morning, sung this morning of uh, Christ who crushes the head of the serpent, the serpent's head. And in the beginning of the Bible, there's a promise that while death will reign for a time, one day a son of Eve will crush the serpent's head. How exactly that will happen at that point, it is not sure, but God will reverse the terrible thing that has just happened. He's going to do that through Abraham. Abraham's a big deal, a great man. And God came to him, not because he's a great man, but because he's a man who needed the grace of God. So he's the one to whom God came. He's also the one from whom all the other important people basically come. You have the patriarchs, you're familiar with Isaac, his son, and then Jacob, and then Jacob has... 12 that head to the 12 tribes that make up Israel. It all comes from Abraham. In fact, the book of Genesis, which is where this little scene with Melchizedek happens, is designed, the whole shape of Genesis is along the lines of generations. It focuses on Abraham, and then it focuses on Isaac and his children, then it focuses on Jacob and his children, and then you've got The nation of Israel and the story will focus on these 12 tribes, the children of Jacob from there. The whole story is built around genealogy. And all of the important characters to follow will follow from Abraham. He's a big deal. He's familiar to us, at least by name. Melchizedek, much less so. This guy is something. Uh, He is, he's shadowy. He is like a shadow. Um, I thought this week, you know, you watch one video on YouTube and it's like, you want more of that, right? I'm like, yes. Uh, you know, a Michael Jordan slam dunk contest, you know, they found some video from, from uh, the late 80s and you're kind of watching this little character and you're like, he took off from the, the free throw line. It doesn't look amazing on this video, but you're, like, you're just thinking of how far that is. And I'm just imagining there being some other character on the court that just puts Jordan away. I mean, pick your favorite sports hero. Uh, That's what this would be like. Who is this guy that Abraham is showing respect to and deference to? How, where did Melchizedek come from? It's like from a parallel universe. He breaks in for just about two or three verses in the story of Genesis. He's gone. His name is hard to say. Uh, He's mentioned just once in the Old Testament history, twice in the Old Testament history, entirely, maybe hundreds of times Abraham is mentioned, and he has no genealogy. Remember, the book of Genesis is built around genealogy. Everyone has a backstory and names before them and names after them if they're important. Now, even if they're not important, their name appears in the context of a genealogy. 
This guy appears with no genealogy. You'd think he's unimportant for that reason. Like an extra in the film. You, you kind of need him there. Uh, there are going to be some other characters. You don't need to know their names necessarily. You don't need to remember them. They're just eating a taco. Some of you have been extras. So he's lying like an extra. Except he's got no father or mother. What's up with that? Um, now, Genesis didn't say this, but the author of Hebrews is saying, no genealogy, doesn't have a mom or a dad. No beginning or end of days, nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. He's been around forever, apparently, and he's lived forever, apparently. That's interesting. And so there's all kinds of proposals as to what this is, who this was. Was it an angel? It doesn't meet the description of the appearance of angels in other instances, and wouldn't the author have said as much? Is it the Son pre-incarnate? We believe the Son has appeared in other instances in the Old Testament story. That's an intriguing uh, proposal for another day. Uh, But this author would have said as much. Instead, he says he resembles the Son of God. I don't think it's the Son pre-incarnate before becoming man, Jesus. His mystical character. He's awfully important, though. Look at his name. King of Righteousness. That's how you translate his name. King of Righteousness shows up in the 14th chapter of Genesis. He's from an important place. Salem, translated King of Peace. Almost certainly that's Jerusalem. So as Israelites are reading their backstory in the book of Genesis, here's this man from Jerusalem before Jerusalem belonged to Abraham's children. Who was this and what was he doing there? And how was he this king of righteousness? Apparently a godly man, a priest of the most high God. He belonged to God in that world in that time. And the king of peace, well, those two words go well together. You want righteousness and you want peace. And one has to come before the other and he's got both. He's also got a pretty good job. He's a king and a priest. There's none of those in the Old Testament. He's the only one. Gets a couple verses. He's obviously important. He comes to bless Abraham of all people. The one to whom God promised he would bless the world. He comes and blesses Abraham. And his relationship with Abraham. Just look at this. You don't need to turn there. But Genesis chapter... No, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 14. Because it's so easy. Very beginning of the Bible. First book. 14th chapter. We've talked about this meeting with Melchizedek and Abraham, and I just want to read it for you and point something out. Between Abraham and family, there was a skirmish and a separation, and then four kings, wicked kings from that ancient land, had taken captive Lot and families, taken hostages. Abraham had assembled a crew of 318 to go fight and rescue family in their back. And after his return from the defeat of the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. 
that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, the blessed, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. We'll read to the end of the little uh, unit here. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, this is a different king now, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you say, I've made Abraham rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Well, that's it. And only three of those verses, four of those verses, were focused on Melchizedek. But notice here, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now back to our passage in Hebrews. He's important for his name, king of righteousness, his place, king of peace, his job, he's a king and a priest, and his relationship with Abraham. He sits down to eat with Abraham. It's not just any eating. Abraham had plundered those he destroyed in rescuing family and his people back. He didn't need the food. The king of Salem doesn't come out, oh, uh, you're hungry and thirsty, here's some bread and some wine. No, that's symbolic of solidarity, fellowship, friendship. It's a covenant meal. There are covenants between God and men and covenants between men and men, and that's exactly what this is, a very intimate, important relationship with Abraham. Now, the king of Sodom sought to have some type of relationship with him, but he's already probably gotten word that things aren't so good there. Abram's not interested. But this king of Salem, he is interested, and he does welcome him, and he gladly receives a blessing and even gives a tithe, a tenth of what he has won in victory to this man. So these are who the two men are. Now, why did they meet? There's a couple ways we could answer that question. It's nice to know why you're invited to a meeting, right? Who wants to go to more meetings? What is the purpose of this meeting? Especially if it's other people meeting and I'm watching, which is kind of what we're doing. So let's figure out what they're meeting for. There's a couple ways to answer that. Uh, in terms of Abe's immediate story, he just defeated these wicked kings, and it's a sign of solidarity, no doubt encouragement and identification with Abraham and his God. They bros. And they're on the same page. And that was an encouraging meal. Moses, who writes the story, sticks that in there, and that little spot, is putting this story there, this little meeting there, in order to signal God's commitment to Abraham and the promises that he made. Here's a man with a great name who comes with a blessing, and he actually happens to be from within the land that God is giving to Abraham, though that story will take years to unfold. It's a little hint, kind of loud from, from Moses to his readers, that God stands behind his promises. And there are other ways that he stands behind his promises, but this meeting is one of those. Now, there's another reason. Let's say in light of the whole Bible story that the Holy Spirit put this here, and it is to prefigure the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. It does not say that the son resembles Melchizedek. It says that Melchizedek resembles the son of God. 
And so as we talk about at times here, use a big word on Christmas Sunday, we believe the Bible unfolds as a unified story, not only through specific verbal prophecies of Jesus, but through figures and events that create expectation and set a pattern that Jesus fulfills. Like the dots are being laid down and then Jesus in his coming connects them all. Sometimes in ways that are clearer but not as obvious to you back then. This figure is here, we're told, by the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews for that very reason. The Old Testament has figures in it that are like shadows which are cast by the cross and resurrection and person of Jesus down onto the page. Now you know they're shadows of the Savior when the Bible tells you that. So you don't need to read into every name on the page. In fact, you should not do that. But the Bible's doing enough of this development on its own. This character is a shadow, or we could say like a, a sketch, you know those little criminal sketches. You don't want to be one of those guys, right? A little sketch of a face. And you think, who looks like that? And they catch him. And it does look like him. And if it's you, you think, that looks like me. I hope they, don't, they, don't, they can't tell. There's a resemblance. It's not perfect. There are things left out, things that are in. It might even be somewhat cartoonish to exaggerate a feature. That's a little bit of what this kind of thing is, a shadow or a sketch. And Jesus fulfills the shadows and the sketches. He shows up as the real thing for the shadow, which is not the real thing, but is connected to the real thing. So the Bible prepares us to see Jesus not only by telling, but by showing. And this is a by showing kind of moment in the Old Testament scriptures. Direct prophecy and indirect prophecy, which is prophecy still. Now, what is this about not having a father and a mother? I don't believe it's pre-incarnate Christ or an angel. I believe we're talking about here in Melchizedek an historical figure who was born and who died. You'll have to make your own judgment on this. But that's my judgment on this question. And I kind of have to come to one because I have to preach to you all. I guess I didn't have to do this, did I? I could have done something else. But we were coming to it in the book of Hebrews either way. Then what is this about no father and mother or genealogy and lives forever and all, all of that? It is as it concerns his priesthood. Let me read for you just a portion from the book of Ezra. The people of God were exiled from the land due to disobedience and covenant unfaithfulness. And they come back to the land and there have been babies and generations and people trace their lineage and just listen to how important knowing your lineage is knowing your genealogy is having actual records of where you came from for priests there's a whole chapter of names and who's where and came from who and then the following were those who came up from tel Telharsha, tel and cherub adan and emmer though they could not prove their father's houses or the descent whether they belonged to israel these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, the books. But they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. For the nation of Israel, just as the kings would come from Judah and Abraham, so the priests came from Aaron, the Levites, 
No one served as a priest who wasn't a Levite, who wasn't from Aaron. No one. No one served as a priest who was from Levite and from Aaron who didn't have a written record of it who wasn't in the books. And they were considered unclean because you don't mess with the priesthood. God authorizes the priesthood. And what's so important about a priesthood? It is the way to God. A priest is a mediator between God and man, and we need priests. We need a priest who is the Lord Jesus. He is our priest. We'll get there in a moment. The Levitical priests were the way that the people related with God. And they counted on their priests being legitimate because their priests had a record of their birth and their lineage. And then they died and they were replaced. But what is this about a priest from Salem who doesn't have any records at all? A priest of the Most High God. In other words, Melchizedek is a king priest whose priesthood is authorized on the basis of the call of God. Not on the basis of of blood or lineage or genealogy. That's why he says this. Here's this little sketch on the page of the Old Testament, which is like a little hint. It's not an Easter egg. It's like a Christmas egg. If you're looking for it, you can see it. If you're reading the Old Testament, you say, well, who is this priest who's not a Levite? He's a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God, and he's righteous, and he's from Jerusalem. No, he is a priest by the unilateral assignment of God, which is an indication that there just might be not a sketch, but a real, a real priest with no beginning and no end. And when the Lord Jesus shows up, who has no beginning for he has existed forever, and he has no end for he has risen from the dead, and he intercedes for us as our high priest now, oh, that actually fits the profile of Melchizedek a king of righteousness, a king of peace, who blesses, who in terms of his sketched description has no father or mother or genealogy and he continues forever. His priesthood is an open-ended priesthood. It never got invalidated. It never got shut off. It never got expired. That's what this means. And so what does this meeting have to do for our meeting today or for our original readers this addressed that deep unsettling hard to admit thought that maybe I've made a huge mistake in identifying with Christ these folks would have their property pillaged and plundered and they they were not allowed to work here or there, and they were, they were excluded from this or that field that they had trained for and given themselves to. They were put out of their family, and there was the threat of death for some. Well, this had better be right, this Christianity thing, because it's costing me a lot. And maybe it's not right. Maybe I should go back. Maybe I should go back to the old priesthood. We had a day of atonement. We had the priest and his garments, and we had the curtains, and we had the tent and all that stuff, and the tabernacle. You could see it, you could smell it, you could hear it. It was great. That was all very comforting and reassuring. But now I have this priest who's costing me everything and I can't see him. I pray to him and through him, but I can't see him. And have I made a big mistake? I've never gone skydiving, but I've talked with 
some who have. You put your trust, if you're not an instructor yourself, you put your trust in that person who goes with you, attached at four points with the skydiving pro. There's that individual right in front of you. There's the gear. There's the connection at four points. There's the parachute pack you may have seen packed yourself. There's the reputation of that individual. You are immediately physically attached to in a way that meets your senses as you drop from a plane. Well, the Old Testament priesthood was like that. You're, you're casting yourself and your life on the system, on these priests and their sacrifices, and their sacrifices for their own sins so that they can represent you to God, so that you can be heard by God and pray and be forgiven by God and all of that. And to turn to Jesus from that is to trade the concrete, physical, tent, and sacrificial system and priests for an invisible man who is crucified by the Roman authorities, the Murunder, who it's claimed that he rose from the dead and then ascended to the Father's right hand where you can't see him. That's what you and I are banking our lives on. As if to drop from a plane without the help of this professional, our priest, to mediate between us and the ground... We cast all of our hope on Jesus who claims to be our righteousness and bring us peace between us and God. And that's all we got. And so while at first we may not relate immediately with the kind of people who need to hear about Melchizedek, oh, actually we have the same temptation, do we not? Maybe not to leave off Jesus for an Old Testament system of rituals and sacrifices, but to leave off Jesus for the former things that we trusted in for righteousness and for peace and a shot at safety with God at death. Our good works. Maybe going to church faithfully. Maybe our baptism. Some other religious ritual. None of those things make you right with God. Going to church at Christmas. We're glad that you're here if that's not normal for you. And we would welcome you back every week. But any of us who are here every week dare not trust in our church attendance for our safety with God. For it is His all-sufficient merit. It is His perfect work that makes us right with God. Jesus is the fullness of that sketch. Melchizedek had a name. Not sure how he got it. But King of Righteousness is a good name. But it overpromised because he wasn't without sin, but Jesus is without sin. King of peace, where he's from. Oh, Jesus, he brings real peace because he's truly righteous. Not only is he righteous, but he imparts righteousness so that you and I can have a righteousness that is not from our own goodness, but that is from his goodness. And when we trust in him, God looks at us as having no sin and being perfectly righteous. And that is his gift to us. That is what Jesus came to give to sinners. Now what is all this from verse 4 to 10? Well, the original readers would have been thinking, oh, what about Abraham and the Levites? Well, if you think about it, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, right? Yes, yes he did. Yes, he did that. Okay, the Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. 
Good point. And what did Melchizedek give to Abraham? Well, he blessed him. Well, who can bless Abraham? But God, but Melchizedek did. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, right? Yep. Okay. He's a big deal. He's a bigger deal still. Because if you think about it, those old priests that you trusted in, that you're thinking about reverting back to, it's kind of as though as Abraham represented them as their father, it's kind of like all the while you were paying your 10% to the priests and so trusting in them, so they were paying Melchizedek all along. Don't go back to the priesthood. And similar arguments could be made that appeal to you with respect to whatever system of external trust that you have given yourself to in the past or that you're giving yourself to now. And maybe it's not a churchy thing like church attendance or a religious ritual that you're trusting in or even your good works to be right with God. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, whole, a whole other system of morality by which you can be good. And there are, there's a, a pretty religious-sounding system of morality on offer from our world and culture these days. There's a way to be good and a holiness code of things you can say and that you sure can't say. But if you stick with that code, you could be considered holy and acceptable and be at peace with the world, and you could have a kind of peace within yourself, although it's not deep peace, and we know it. Whatever it is you've been trusting in, nothing compares with this priest who is a high priest who can really get us to God, who's really righteous, who can bring real and lasting peace, who has been forever, who is from forever, and who is forever for us. Jesus Christ, the King of righteousness, the King of peace, the King who brings blessing because he turns back the curse. He can do that for you and me because he was born a human, because he was a baby who became a man who could represent you. There in that manger is our Messiah who can save us because he can represent us because he is a man. And there in that manger is God himself who can save us because he can represent us because he is God himself. He is righteous and can bring us peace with God. So friend, for whatever reason you've come this morning, you've come to hear the word of God and we have heard it. And we've heard of Christ. And let us be sure, let us, let us be sure that if our trust is in Jesus, we have made no mistake. So here's a sermon for Christmas on the meeting of Abraham with Melchizedek, a priest who was a man from God, who looked forward to a priest who was a man and God. I hope you've met him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this most mysterious passage so strange, it's likely to stick in our heads. And so I pray you would help us to be a church that believes the whole Bible is about Jesus, and even when we aren't sure how, we know you know how, and that maybe we'll hear a sermon on it someday. And Father, I pray that, that we would as a church be those marked by peace, because we belong to the one who is righteous and who brings peace. He's the only one who is truly righteous, who can bring true peace.
And assure us by your word and through these songs that we have made no mistake in coming to him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.